everyone's got their own way of explaining it, but it definitely focuses you in on a very weird and wonderful hallucination. I've seen, you know, kaleidoscopic colors, beings try to teach me things and converse with me. You don't have a lot of strength or, or, or anything like that. So, I mean, it's very difficult to put words to, to the experience. It's like the perfect espresso after a, a delicious meal. You know, you only need that little bit and then you're good. You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. Hello, Narcotica listeners. This is your co-host, Troy Farah. We know it's been a little quiet on our end lately. It hasn't been the easiest year for all of us at Narcotica with the pandemic, the election, the overdose crisis worsening. Uh, plus a whole bunch of personal stuff we won't bore you with. But rest assured, Narcotica is not going anywhere. This episode on Salvia will be the last of 2020, but we've been quietly preparing for a major comeback in 2021 with a more rigorous, reliable schedule. Hopefully two to three episodes per month about all kinds of drugs and drug culture, from voices and drug policy you respect, as well as sources on the street you won't hear from pretty much anywhere else. We hope to implement more news into our format so we can keep listeners like you up to date on all the latest stuff in the drug world, and we're seeking ways to expand our audience so that we can get our message of harm reduction, human liberty, and weird chemistry to more earholes. We're coming up on three years of Narcotica, which is just mind-blowing to say. Uh, we never would have imagined this project taking off like it has. Uh, we have such a dedicated, generous audience, and we wouldn't be doing any of this if it wasn't for your support. Speaking of which, you can help us out on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash narcotica, and we'll mail you cool stickers or give you a shout-out on the show if you request. Your contribution helps keep this show on the air, so thank you. You can also just help us spread the word, tell a friend about us, share an episode that you thought was pretty interesting. Our guest today is Dr. Ivan Castleman in Vancouver, BC, Canada, who has a PhD in capital P, capital S, plant science, studying their analytical chemistry and genetics. Probably most interesting to us here at Narcotica is his investigation into psychoactive plants, especially Salvia divinorum. Most people know Salvia as the weird drug at head shops that you try once, have a bizarre, uncomfortable experience, and never touch it again. But there's so much more to Salvia and psychedelics and plant medicine in general that we'll get into, so stick around. Ivan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, and, and thank you for having me on the on the podcast. Before we talk about Salvia and plant medicine, um, let's give listeners a a good definition of ethnobotany and why you got into it. I uh, spoke recently to a really incredible ethnobotanist earlier this year. Uh, her name was Dr. Cassandra Quave at Emory University. She's doing fantastic work on like antibacterial resistance and so much more. And she explained to me that ethnobotany has historically been sort of looked down upon by other scientific disciplines. You know, your biochemist is uh, or DNA engineers or whatever might like sniff their noses at ethnobotany. And that is largely because a lot of the early science was, to be frank, really haphazard and kind of just awful. And like all science, it's gotten more robust with age, but that hasn't always been the case. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what she told me. So Ivan, are there misconceptions about ethnobotany and what personally interests you in it? Yeah, honestly, I've never come across 
too many of those kind of like misconceptions and stuff like that. I like it is a scientific discipline. Essentially, what ethnobotany is is how people use plants. It's the study of how people use plants. So it sort of parallels two distinct disciplines. On one side, it's the botany, um, which is a you know that's a that's a science. It's a very very rigorous. There's you know lots of methodologies involved in it. And then the people part. Anytime you have people, it can never be pure science. So you've got sort of an anthropological component to it as well. So you know the science that is generated from the discipline of ethnobotany. Basically, it informs the pharmaceutical industry on on different types of plant medicines that that eventually get adapted into pharmaceutical medicine. But you know. It's a very observational science. So you're in the field, you're collecting the plants, you're talking to the people. So yeah, it, what, what really got me interested in it was some of my early um, sort of heroes, particularly Richard Evan Schultes, who's considered the grandfather of modern ethnobotany. He spent years and years and years in the Amazon studying different plants. But in particular, he, he made a, a large part of his career studying psychedelic plants. And when I was an undergrad a long, long time ago, nobody was really coming to me and saying, hey, you can study psychedelics as a, as a career. There's, there's disciplines where people are allowed to you know, study these, these amazing plants. I was really lucky to have one mentor in particular, um, Nancy Turner, who's, who's Canada's foremost eth- ethnobotanist. She put me in, that, in the right direction. Um, and, I, and so I just I delved into all the literature, all, everything that I could get my hands on. And eventually, um, there's two ethnobotany master's programs in, uh, in the world. There's one at the University of Kent, which is where I went, and then the other one at the University of Hawaii. So, you know, very, very small number of people are trained in ethnobotany year over year. But uh, I, I, it's still a very, very important discipline. And, and, and yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I love plants and, you know, People are, are always going to be using plants and finding different ways of doing them. Cultures are going to share different plants and what they do with them. And so it's always, uh, it's, we're always exploring. We're always learning new things. Yeah, plants are dope. They're definitely taken for granted. You know, we talk about animals going extinct all the time, uh, but there's really not a lot of conservation of plants and not a lot of respect for them. They're just these things that kind of are around us, but not a lot of people like appreciate them for you know, so many chemical processes that we take for granted, the nitrogen cycle, oxygen, oxygen, of course. <laughs> yeah. And of course, the plants that provide uh, psychoactive substances are really interesting to me. I think um, they can teach us a lot about consciousness. And, you know, they can also be therapeutic. So what is salvia divinorum? I mean, if someone has never heard of this drug before, what is it like to take it? And have you tried it personally? So I'll start with the last question. Yes, absolutely. If you want to be a psychedelic researcher, you have to have experience in psychedelics. Any psychedelic researcher that doesn't have experience isn't, isn't fully adopting the scientific method. Now, as far as salvia, the active compound in salvia is called salvinorin A. It's a psychoactive diterpene. The chemist out there, your ears will have perked up because um, mostly what gets us high is our alkaloids as a general rule. And so as far as I've, I've ever been able to discover, uh, salvinorin A is the only psychoactive diterpene that we know of. Um, so that's, that's pretty, pretty special to start with. It comes from Mexico, Oaxaca, Mexico. It, it grows in the Sierra Mazatec. So it, it, it prefers like a montane forest, high altitude. So very sort of wet, damp, but high altitude. 
traditionally it was used by the Mazatec, who are the indigenous people um, in that southern region of Mexico. Um, and they used it for a variety of things. Most interesting, they actually used it as one of the three plants to train their medicine people. So they're called curanderos or curanderas, male, female. And so they used salvia as the, the initial tool that these curanderos or curanderas started to work with. They also use it for divination, which is where the, the name salvia divinorum comes from. So divination is like, yeah, I don't know, fi- seeing in the future, finding your keys, your lost chicken, whatever. So, Right. So that's kind of interesting that it's sort of used to initiate people because for a lot of people, salvia is their first experience with a psychedelic because it's sort of widely available. It's not uh, really regulated in the United States. You can get it at uh, like head shops and stuff like that. How did it go from being this sort of sacred plant to, I almost describe it as a meme, which I think is, you know, a big misconception about this plant that we want to kind of challenge here on the show is just like, it's not just this, you know, party favor or something that you try to, you know, freak out your friends or something. It's more than that. Exactly. Yeah, no, it's it's not just a party trick. It And I've actually spent quite a bit of time researching sort of its transition from a traditional medicine into a, a, a fairly widely known North American phenomenon, because it, it happened at a much later time than than a lot of the other other compounds. So R. Gordon Wasson was in Mexico in the 60s, and he came back and wrote the article in Life, you know, and that sort of turned people on to the to psilocybin. And, you know, even even things like, you know, DMT and mescaline and all these kind of stuff, they, they'd already started to enter our cultural lexicon, you know, by the 60s. Whereas salvia, it, it doesn't come along until, you know, the mid to late 90s and is largely linked to the early like alt drug news groups at the time. So, so people were starting to kind of understand and experiment with it. If you back it up to, uh, to again, the 1960s, Albert Hoffman and, and Richard Evan Schultes actually collected a flowering specimen of the plant and brought it back. They didn't actually bring a living specimen. A living specimen was brought back um, around the same time by a naturalist called Sterling Brunel, and he put it into the UC Davis herbarium as a living specimen. And it's interesting because that one specimen ended up, you know, uh, supplying, you know, Daniel Siebert and Andrew Wheel and um, Alexander Shuglin and all of these like very notable leaders in, in, the, in the psychedelic space. So we have a very one or two sort of cultivars that are outside of Mexico and, and in, in wide circulation. So, yeah, so around the, the, that, that 90s timeline, um, people started to get interested in it, talk about it in the news groups um, and start to experiment with it. I don't exactly know what person decided that we're going to extract salvinorin A from the salvi divinorum and make it, you know, 30 or 40 or 50 times more potent. Whether that was a good idea or not, I, I'm, I'm going to um, reserve my judgment on that. Traditionally, what happens is that the, the Mazatec will take, you know, 30 or 40 leaves, roll them up into a tube and kind of like chew away at it. So you've got to kind of masticate it for 20 or 30 minutes. Um, feels like you've got a mouthful of grass. It's not not a pleasant, you know, way to take it, but um, but then you you onboard the salvinorin A and you get a nice sort of two hour up and down. Now, when you extract the salvinorin A and you smoke it, it's a totally different experience. It potentiates the experience quite drastically. So, and I think a lot of people aren't ready for it because something that you buy from a head shop, you're not expecting it to have that potent of an effect. 
It's not like, you know, a Damiana tea or a, another sort of like, you know, second tier herbal um, psychoactive. Um, it's very, very potent and very, very strong. Speaking of the potency, I find this really interesting. Uh, Salvinorin A is uh, one of the most potent naturally occurring psychedelics known to man. It's uh, like LSD, which is, you know, active in the uh, microgram range. Uh, Salvinorin A is active around 200 to 500 micrograms. Correct me if I'm wrong on that, but uh, I think that's... Yeah, no, no, that, that, that's that's about right. Yeah, it's about like Salvinorin A itself is probably double or triple the potent like you need double or triple the amount that uh, than you do for lsd but yeah you know it's in that kind of same range and, and again it's the comparison between an alkaloid and a and a and a diterpene i've also seen this thing that's really kind of uh, counterintuitive that at high doses at 10 milligrams the drug seems to apparently have no effect um, that's interesting i've never I've, I've actually never run across that in my in my research i could send you the citation maybe it's yeah i read it a long time ago so for sure. um, but, I'd be interested in, in looking into that. Um, I guess there's a case where, you know, I guess the receptor sites might, because it, 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 um, it interacts with the kappa opiate receptor. So there, there's going to be a case where you, you end up, you know, activating those receptor sites and basically running out of receptor sites to activate. Yeah, I do want to get into some of the nerdier pharmacology of this because I find it really very interesting. So I'll give a little bit of background and you can correct me if I get any of this wrong because I'm I'm not a chemist. Uh, but salvinorin A is a kappa opioid receptor agonist. Basically, you know, humans have these receptors throughout the body called opioid receptors, but not just opioids like heroin or fentanyl target these receptors. All kinds of drugs can interact with them depending on the drug. And there are several different types of opioid receptors. There's the mu opioid receptor, which is the one that causes the most pain-relieving effects. So that's the one we talk about the most. But there's also the kappa opioid receptor. And salvinorin A targets this receptor. It agonizes it. So why is this unique among psychedelics? And, you know, what can we learn about this? Well, it's unique that in that it's a diterpene. I'm uh, focusing in on that a little bit. But, you know, we don't know of any other psychoactive diterpenes. So just the, you know, the mode which it interacts with our receptor sites and, you know, it, it, it creates a high potential for um, the development of therapeutic use just because it's a different way that hasn't been, you know, we haven't explored that way before. Um, so I think that that's, that's where the, the most interesting potential comes from. There is a bit of research too, that salvia divinorum interacts with um, our endocannabinoid system as well, not in a dramatic way, like, like, cannabis, but it, it does have interactions with it. Interesting. So ibogaine is also a kappa receptor agonist, although just a moderate one, if I recall correctly. For people that aren't familiar, ibogaine is a plant-derived psychoactive drug that is uh, allegedly pretty good for treating opioid disorder. According to a lot of research, it can kind of snap somebody out of an addictive episode with just one experience, although I think we need to kind of like uh, investigate that more, but do you think there are any parallels here, or maybe salvia could for have some potential for treating addiction? I think it, uh, broad strokes, yes. I, I think that most psychoactive compounds have have the potential to help people with with addiction. Uh, I don't know if sal salvia divinorum or salvinorin A is the is the ideal choice, and and not a lot of research has been done about that. But I definitely think it has a high potential simply based on on that parallel between you know ibogaine and 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 salvinorin a i think that i think that it would be worth exploring that for sure and the world needs as many of these 
these types of therapies as possible. You know, like we, we have a, a you know a huge addictive crisis, um, especially here in North America. So, you know, it's, yeah, it would be worth, worth looking into a little bit more. Yeah. I've never personally heard any stories of someone treating their addiction or dependency with salvia, but it'd be interesting. And like you said, it's definitely worth investigating. We have so many uh, mental health crises in tandem right now, especially with the COVID-19 pandemic. I think all things are worth investigating and why not start with nature? Nature has so much to offer us. Agreed. There, there is one major difference between Ibogaine and Salvi Divinorum in that the Salvi Divinorum experience, it's a lot shorter period um, or a lot you know shorter duration. Even when you uh, eat the leaves, um, it's only about a two hour experience, whereas Ibogaine, you know, eight, nine, 10 hours. And it's very, very hard on the body. You know, it works the heart muscle really hard and it's a very powerful and potent experience. Uh, whereas Sal- Salvi Divinorum may be a little bit softer on the on the physiology of the body, so it might make it a little bit more um, adept at, at treating that without putting people through that that very hard um, you know work on your body. Yeah, I've always heard ibogaine or ibogaine. I always say it ibogaine. Uh, I say ibogaine as well. Yeah. <laughs> the the trip uh, can be really uncomfortable. It's not something I've ever tried, and it's not something I'm really interested in trying immediately uh, because it's, you know, it can last like 36 hours or something like that. Yeah. Typically the subject, like the, 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 the effects of it. Yeah. You're looking at sort of eight to 10 hours, but then you've got like, whereas, you know, psilocybin and, and, and LSD, you kind of get this nice afterglow that kind of bubbles up the next couple of days. But with Ibogaine, it's not an afterglow. Like it's, it's your, your body's still working through it. Um, so it's, yeah, it's quite, yeah, it's a very potent medicine and, and really one not to be trifled with. Like I, I would consider that squarely in the medical therapeutic realm, of course, unless you're from Africa and using it to communicate with your ancestors. Right. Yeah. I guess, you know, maybe we should back up a little bit. You know, maybe we should describe more about what a salvia experience is like for some people that haven't had it. Like it's, I, I would say it sort of has some parallels to DMT in some ways. The onset is very quick and it, the offset is very quick. And it's a disassociative. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah no, I, I totally agree. Like, uh, subjectively speaking, salvia divinorum and, and, and a DMT experience are going to be similar in their effects. Now, I've been researching it for, for quite a while. And when you research something, everyone tells you their stories. One of the research projects I did also analyzed a large number of YouTube videos back to the meme, right? We were t- um, back in 2010. It was, it was a predominant meme um, that people were, you know, people were putting their, their trips up on, on YouTube and stuff like that. So I've been exposed to and listened to a lot of different experiences. And I can tell you where, you know, mushrooms and LSD and, and, and even, even DMT, you start to get themes and, and sort of similar tropes that people will explain as part of their experience Salvia, I've never heard somebody describe their experience in, in a similar manner to anyone else. Like, it's very, very unique. And even my own experiences, um, I've, I've always had very, very distinct and different experiences when I've, when I've taken salvia. So for the, uh, for the listeners out there, when you take salvia divinorum, typically you're smoking a concentrated extract. So what they do is they extract salvinornated leaves and then they kind of, they, they put that salvinornate back onto some more leaves and then you smoke that. Typically your dose is sort of like kind of in the quarter, quarter to half a gram range. 
it doesn't taste very good, but it does taste better than DMT. <laughs> and, and basically, yeah, it, just like DMT, you're trying to get uh, as much of a lungful as possible. You're holding it in as long as possible, breathing it out. Typically, you try to get two or three good lungfuls in, but depending on the strength of your extract, there's a point where the real physical world kind of melts away. And, and really, all you have the capacity to do is to kind of lie down and experience it. Um, so like I said before, it's a disassociative. So it disassociates you from your everyday waking state, whether you want to call it inner space or outer realities. I don't know. Everyone's got their own way of explaining it, but it definitely focuses you in on a very weird and wonderful hallucination. Yeah, I've I've had, you know, strange languages spoken to me i've i've seen you know kaleidoscopic colors i've i've had you know beings try to teach me things and converse with me and you know one one i was you know like tripping out and, and having you know having a hallucination but you know everything was turning counterclockwise the whole time like it was super strange so i mean it's very difficult to put words to to the experience suffice to say it's uh it's it's quite a uh, interesting experience. Yeah, I I describe it as ineffable. I like that word ineffable. That yeah. means you cannot yeah. put it into a description. It's also kind of sublime. I once spoke to this artist who uh, did all these paintings of dinosaurs, kind of falling through these patterns and everything. And he said that he got his inspiration from the sublime, not the band. And I asked him to define that. What does that mean? And he's like, Well, I was once uh, in the ocean, the deep, deep ocean, and I saw a blue whale you know, the most massive animal on earth. And it was tiny in this big wide ocean thing. And like, you know, you're just feeling this indescribable smallness, um, yeah. something like that. And my salvia experiences, I've only had a few and they were quite a while ago, but it seemed to kind of teleport me to another dimension sort of. And it was this really indescribable place. It, it That's why I kind of compared it to DMT because these are the only two psychedelics I really know about that uh, can reliably take people to something that feels like another dimension. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, two, two very, very much disassociative psychedelics. Whereas, you know, things like LSD and, and, and mushrooms, you have to take a lot before you start disassociating. Whereas, yeah, salvia and, and DMT, you know, very small amounts will get you there. Maybe while we're on the sub subject too, I'll I'll just quickly talk about some uh, some safety. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Salvia is a disassociative. It's not something like like when you go take mushrooms, you go take two grams of mushrooms, and you two or three of your friends, and you go out for a hike or whatever, and it's you know it's pleasant, it's recreational or whatever mode you're you're going down. Salvia is not the same. I wouldn't sit across from two of my friends with all three three of our pipes, and we'd all take it at the same time because it lasts such a, a short period of time. It's highly recommended that you have at least one person sober, but really just one person at a time undergoing those experiences. When I was watching all those YouTube videos, there are some pretty catastrophic events that could potentially happen. And like, for example, one video, somebody actually like they freaked out, they jumped up and they basically took one step and fell into a plate glass window. So, you know, the whole like I took LSD and I tried to fly kind of kind of scenario are maybe not that extreme, but they are potential. And honestly, the, it's very, very easy to prevent because all you need is a sober person to put like a light, you know, pressure on somebody's chest to let or, or shoulder to, to prevent them from getting up. 
and that's all it takes. Like you don't have a lot of strength or, or, or anything like that. So, um, but it's good to have a, a sober observer to, to kind of watch the, the process. Yeah. And it only lasts, you know, 10 or 15 minutes. So, you know, in an hour, you know, four people can easily get through kind of an experience and, and, and have a really safe experience with their, with their friends watching on. Yeah, the same sort of rules for all psychedelics sort of apply to salvia. Uh, you know, set and setting are really important. Um, being a good mindset, being a place that's safe. I wouldn't mix it with other drugs. I wouldn't get drunk and take salvia or something like that. Not a, not something to do at a party. In fact, interesting the the traditionally the curanderas or curanderas would would take their clients into the the woods, basically trying to find the quietest place possible, and they also do it at night. So, so they're really looking for a high degree of sensory deprivation. So if you're doing it in, in the room and, you know, the party's pump, pump, pumping away, you know, behind the door, you know, that's not, you're not going to get a, as deep of experience. If you, you know, you set up your house, you know, you turn off all the fans and, and the background music and you make sure that nobody's going to be phoning you or all, all that kind of stuff, you're going to deepen your, your experience. Set and setting is an interesting one. And I've actually had some conversations over the last couple of months about salvia and DMT because it's a disassociative. Um, yes, you always want to make sure that you're in a safe environment around good people. Like you, if you've had a traumatic event, you don't want to just dive into psychedelics. So set and setting is important. Tends not to be as important as like LSD or mushrooms because because that's because you're in it for eight to 10 hours. So your set and setting really has to be good and you have to maintain a set and setting for so long. Whereas, you know, set and setting with, with a, a 15 or 20 minute experience, it, it's easier to maintain, let's say. Yeah. One thing, you know, that I hear commonly reported about salvia experiences uh, is that they're uncomfortable, um, that people don't really generally want to retry them or maybe once or twice is enough for them. Can you talk a little bit about that? Why it seems like the opposite of euphoric is dysphoric. Maybe does that apply here? See, yeah, I'm not sure. Again, we'll probably a little bit of set and setting probably creeps into this. Like if you're you're in a in an uncomfortable place in your life and and not really willing to do the work, it could be uncomfortable. And a lot of times it's people's first foray into psychedelics. And I'll tell you, it's not it's not really something to be trifled with. It's not a it's not really beginner psychedelics, right? Like if if somebody came to me and said, I want to I've never tried psychedelics, I want to try something for the first time, like, you know, a gram of mushrooms or, you know, a, a, a very like a quarter, quarter of a tab of acid or something just to kind of step them in. But yeah, no, a lot of times because it's, it's legal or, and, and, and easily accessible, it, it tends to be their first foray into it. And, and just going into it without the, the kind of knowledge and experience that of what you're going to, um, what you're going to, to find. Personally, I've, I've never had an uncomfortable experience uh, I do know that I've been I've been researching the plant since 2010. Been growing the plant for about a decade before that. I've I've always had sort of unfettered access to the plant, but you know, two maybe three times a, a year. And typically, when when somebody comes to me and like, oh, I'm really interested in trying this 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 plant. Like, can we can we facilitate an experience? And um, and that's kind of when I I dive into it as well. But I don't wake up the next morning like you know oh i got to have another salvi experience right away i think that that what you're left with and and the same thing goes for dmt or my personal experience of dmt like it's like the perfect 
espresso after a, a delicious meal. You know, you only need that little bit and then you're good. Uh, that's, that's the experience I found. I've talked to a lot of people, yeah, and, and yeah, some people do get uncomfortable. Most people are, are just very fascinated and, and interested. But yeah, very few people are like, I'm going to try it tomorrow and, and do it all over again. It, yeah, it's almost like it has a harm reduction strategy built into it. Yeah, I think that's a really good point uh, about, you know, the set and setting maybe playing a big role. And maybe that is why you hear that so often. It's not a comfortable trip because it can be comfortable. In my personal experience, I've done it maybe three times and it was over a decade ago. It was always kind of weird, but pleasant. It wasn't I, I didn't freak out or feel like it was bad. It just kind of felt like a dream that was very bizarre. I'll tell you, I'll tell the story a little bit, I guess, because why not? But, you know, I felt like I was in a an elf forest at one point, and then I felt like my hands were made out of meat, which they technically are, and I kept slapping my face and kind of singing, like, my hands are made of meat, my hands are made of meat. You know, the video became very weird, but after I kind of just, like, shook it off, it was just like, well, that was that was a different experience, you know? It wasn't like... I guess a lot of people can come away maybe even traumatized from this stuff, but, uh, you know, you like you said, you have to respect it. Yeah, you have to respect it. And you have to, like, it's it's just like any other hallucinogen or, or psychedelic. One of the deficits in our society is that we don't have, we're not trained in the use of any psychedelic or any psychoactive um, outside of alcohol and tobacco and coffee, I guess. So our, our culture doesn't have even a framework to base our experience on. Whereas if we were living in, say, a traditional tribe in the Amazon, we would have been indoctrinated from a very young age into, say, ayahuasca, you know, and we would have started by taking small amounts and, and, an, and, and an adult or an experienced person would have explained, you know, these are the reasons why we take it. This is how we take it. This is what we do. This is what we don't do. But because our society is so locked down and we've had this, this horrible war on drugs propaganda machine, you know, filling our minds with, with, with lies and garbage, basically over the last long time, anyways, I guess since the 1930s, we're also very nervous to kind of like to create those frameworks, I guess. And so the frameworks end up being shared, but only within a small sort of tribal group. Um, I mean, we've got the psychedelic community at large, um, which seems like it's broken down into some you know tribal components. And then each of those tribes then have their own way of managing the psychedelics, own way of explaining it, own way of, of transferring knowledge. But it's not a society of like, Society at large is not participating in that. It's a very closed, you know, almost a secret language that 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 people keep because it's been demonized for so long. Yeah, uh, that's really good context. So this is kind of a weird question, but like I, I kind of wonder sometimes, like, how is salvia still legal? And obviously, I don't want to see it be banned. But there's been so many, you know, scary news stories over the years saying how this is you know, it kind of rises and falls in popularity among young people. But I, I, so you're in Canada. I don't know what the legal status of it is there. If you can get it as readily as you can in the U.S. You cannot. So, so yeah, I've, I've lived in um, Canada. Uh, well, I'm from Canada, but I've also lived in the U.K. and Australia. In Canada, it was a couple, probably five or six years ago that they, they made it illegal. Um, so you're not allowed to sell it at, at head shops anymore. When I was in the UK, 2008, 2009, they were all they were they were also passing an act that that prevented it. I was lucky because I had started my research before they they got kind of down that regulatory path. So I was because I actually chose salvia because at the time 
if I had chosen any other psychoactive plant or cannabis or anything else like that to study for my my master's degrees, I would have uh, I would have had to spend tons of time and money doing you know paperwork and you know government licenses and this and that. So I was lucky because salvia at the time was was still legal and it was accessible. So I ended up collecting salvia specimens from Canada, from from the UK and all over Europe, and then in Australia, you weren't allowed to sell it in a shop but you were allowed to sell the plant. And I, I, I imagine that that's still, still the same here. So, but back to the original question, why is it still legal? I think it, it stayed legal in the US and, and stayed legal in like Canada and the UK and Australia for so long, because if you take the population that typically does psychedelic drugs, um, you end up with maybe like two or 3% of the population. And I would say that less than 1% of that population ends up, you know, actually being interested in salvia and, and going out and taking it. So, and then it's not something like, you know, it's, it's not something that you're, you're going to take every weekend, right? So, you know, you have, you know, a, a couple thousand people in a population that may do it once or twice a year. I think it just ends up not being a big enough deal for the government to, to really take on now in the U.S., it's a whole other problem too, because because they've got the interaction between federal and state level regulatory frameworks that are that both have the ability to to regulate the, the you know the consumption and sale of psychoactive compounds. Whereas in Canada, like the federal government dictates the rules on the controlled substances, um, and then the you know that just so the provinces don't really have a choice. That would be what I think. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, I mean, hopefully we can get it, you know, turned over in Canada, I guess, right? I think where we're at right now in Canada, I don't know if you picked up the news, but um, Health Canada on Friday um, has not in any definitive way, but in a very broad way, they've recognized that psychedelics have the potential for medicine. And they've sort of committed to exploring how they might create a framework you know, typical bureaucrats, they're not just going to come out of the gate and saying, we're going to do it. But, um, you know, it's, it's a step in the right direction. And primarily the conversation in Canada right now is around psilocybin, but I think it doesn't matter which one goes first. I think once one psychedelic has been accepted for medicine, I think it won't take very long for others to be um, regulated and, and used as a medicine. And I think that I think that there's going to be some other compounds that are, are looked at and studied heavily first before salvia, but, you know, eventually the research will get back around to salvia and having read most of the research out there on salvia divinorum, I know that there's a good foundation, you know, that where we can, you know, start doing that, those, those stage one, um, you know, animal trials and then get, get it into clinical trials and start, start to find some indications that it works for. So it's, it's waiting it just needs some government and, and probably a, a researcher or two to really champion the cause and, and really get it into the human research. Yeah. I did want to talk to you about uh, the psychedelic scene in Canada. Like you mentioned, psilocybin seems to be making a lot of progress. Thanks to the work of Therasil, they're great folks. Uh, they were able to petition the government to use psilocybin with terminally ill patients. Most recently, they were able to 
petitioned the government to allow them to dose themselves. That sounds, that sounds a little weird when you say dose themselves, but uh, you know what I mean. They're allowed to take well, practitioner training. Yeah, that, that's more professional sounding uh, because that, that is important. Uh, as you mentioned at the top of this episode, that uh, you know people need to have their own personal experience with psychedelics if they're going to be applying them in therapeutic settings. Yeah, especially for practitioners, I think it's it's absolutely important that they experiment with it. In fact, early, early days, um, you know, back in the 50s and 60s, one of the, the targeted use cases for psychedelics was to give psychiatrists insight into their patients' kind of state of mind or, or whatever. But yeah, no, it's, I think that experience is very, very important. Theracil has been doing some amazing work on the sort of the nonprofit side. So we have a, a mechanism in Canada where the health minister can grant a very special permission to an individual to be able to take a medicine that's not currently regulated in Canada, but has been shown to have a use. Uh, so yeah, we're, we're, I think we're over 10 patients now. Initially, it was all palliative, so they had to be sort of end of life. Um, but, but they're now starting to add some, you know, resistant depression and, you know, some, some other indications to it. At the same time as all this great work on the nonprofit side is happening, Canada is once again at the epicenter of a brand new industry. Um, you know, we kind of sparked the, the legal cannabis industry, you know, a while back. I think we're the, we were the first country in the world to have um, legal medical cannabis federally. So yeah, there's, there's a number of companies. I am currently um, working for a company called Haven Life. I'm the chief psychedelic officer of, of Haven Life. Yeah, so. that's a really cool title. Thank you. Yeah, it's, um, yeah we, um, we had to dive into the capital markets thing because innovation costs a lot of money. So we, had to, we needed to go down that route. But we've, yeah, we're lining up some amazing projects um, coming up in the new year. Uh, we'll be starting a, like some preclinical work at the University of New England and um, and yeah, we're we're I've actually just just got off a call with Heroic Hearts, which is an organization, uh, well, global organization, um, particularly I think they started in the U.S. Um, and they help veterans and they facilitate psychedelic experiences for veterans. So you know, ayahuasca in Peru and um, and and some other things. So um, yeah, there's there's some really interesting things happening there and other companies too that are doing good work. I know that Haven is really focused on on creating you know, quality controlled compounds for therapeutic use. Um, you know, we're a medical company, um, but a medical natural healthcare product company. Cause so we want to, we want to take the natural healthcare approach to psychedelic medicine. Um, and I know there's other companies out there that, that are looking at opening clinics. Um, so that's, that's great because we'll make the compounds, but you know, you'll have to have somewhere where to have them. I'm hoping that the Canadian um, psychedelic seen unfolds in a similar way to the can how the cannabis did. Um, you know, the government recognizes that it's a medicine. They say, yes, you can use it as a medicine, and then slowly starts to set up a regulatory regime where companies like Haven Life can grow and supply those compounds, and then other companies can then, um, you know, use them. And, uh, you know, a medical practitioner can, um, you know, advise a patient and, and, and do that, the, go the therapeutic route. So I'll just, I'll mention one more thing. Um, I'm, I volunteer with MAPS Canada, um, which is, I, I, I don't exactly know how the organizations work, but it's the same as MAPS US, um, but there's a, a Canadian um, side of things. Um, and they're doing some incredible work as well um, and facilitating, you know, clinical trials. And, you know, their work is, is top notch. So um, I, I think that they're definitely a, you know, a pillar or a foundation to, to 
what we've been able to achieve thus far in Canada and definitely will be part of the success going forward. That is a lot of really great background. Thank you, because I was going to ask about that. Uh, I really want to know more about how Canada is, their, their psychedelic scene is evolving because, uh, you know, you mentioned that Canada was the first to uh, federally legalize medical marijuana. Uh, they were also the second country to legalize recreational cannabis. Um, and, I mean, you guys are, you know, <laughs> making the U.S. look bad. Like, you, you got all this, you know, these... It's a really great market, it seems like, or an industry, uh, yeah. or, or it's doing the best it can. I mean, there's, there's, there's complaints that everybody can make, but uh, it it's, you know, forward thinking and on the research side. And I think that that will happen with psychedelics as well. Um, uh, but, you know, I, I do want to talk about this thing that happened in mid-November. A petition was signed by 15,000 Canadians requesting lawmakers loosen restrictions on entheogenic plants and fungi because... Canadians have this really great government that if enough people petition something, the government has to respond. So it triggered this response. But the lawmakers basically said, there's nothing that needs to be changed. They just kind of shrugged it off. The the House of Commons was like, no, this is not something we're going to take up. And, you know, another aspect of this is um, a lot of people in the decriminalized drug movement criticize the medical model as being... Uh, dominant that you know we're going to take these psychedelics out of the uh, legal realm and we're going to bring them into the medical establishment but that's just another ivory tower can we talk a little bit about both those things like how the government is responding and how do you balance that uh you know you you don't want to keep people from you know still going to jail for having some of these drugs that another person is getting benefit from yeah so the the that petition i mean yeah they, they did a really good job and i think that the response from the government wasn't unexpected. I think that they had a few other things that they were dealing with at the time. So I, I just, I think it was maybe, maybe the timing wasn't quite right. Yeah. The medical thing is interesting because like with, with cannabis in Canada, we went down the medical path first and that medical path kind of um, let, you know, regulators understand what that product was all about and started to kind of create that regulatory framework around it and stuff like that. So when we came along to legalizing it for you know recreational use, then you know a lot of that framework was in place. And I don't think the societal conversation around the legalization of cannabis in Canada would have got to the point where it did so quickly had we not established some of those conversations in the medical realm. The one thing about psychedelics is that, you know, Cannabis is definitely good medicine. Uh, psychedelics, you know, a thousand fold. They are in, an incredible medical resource. Now that said, you know, on, on the on my the kind of the personal side of things, yes, um, for me, psychedelics have been healing and therapeutic. Um, but you know, it's it's. It, I don't like to use the term performance enhancing, but you know, it's 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 helped me, you know, recognize things in my life, optimize things in my life. I love, you know, the ideas that I get and the, you know, the thought trains that I can get on and, you know, just, it, just simply, you know, the fact that you can spend half an hour staring at a leaf and, and see, you know, an you know, incredible kaleidoscope of, of images and, and whatever, right. There, there's so much more to psychedelics than just medicine and healing. Um, so I, I'm, I'm very much an advocate of, 
you know, keeping that open. I'll just maybe explain quickly what I think my ideal sort of like end to this, this sort of regulatory work that that's happening in Canada. I mean, ideally one day we are, you know, as an adult, I'm allowed to go to my psychedelic dispensary and I'm allowed to buy a, you know, prescribed amount. So like, you know, one, maybe one hit of acid or, you know, maybe three grams of mushrooms or whatever. Um, if my friend wants to go tripping with me, he has to come into the shop too. Um, like they can't just dole out, you know, you know, 30 grams of mushrooms or something like that. And, you know, as a responsible adult, I'm going to, I'm going to take that compound just like I would with alcohol or tobacco or, or coffee or whatever. I'm going to take that compound. I'm going to find the right place to, to use it, the right people to use it with. Um, but, but basically I, I have access to, you know, high quality, you know, controlled compounds. Um, and, and I'm able to play out my cognitive sovereignty. Um, cause at the end of the day, you know, the government can control everything, but they cannot control our mind. We have an innate cognitive sovereignty. So if I want to add, add a little bit to my, my neurotransmitters and, and make my mind do different things, I, I don't think that the government really has a right to tell us whether we can or can't. I, I see now that they're, we're, we're going down the path where hopefully one day that they can actually facilitate that. Yeah, I totally agree. I'm very much an advocate for um, cognitive liberty, as uh, Casey Hardison puts it. He's a ex-clandestine chemist, pretty famous in the underground scene. He was recently uh, arrested for marijuana charges, and he's in jail right now trying to fight this uh, these charges based on cognitive liberty. That's the argument he's using, uh, saying, I have the right to alter my consciousness. You shouldn't be able to take away... Uh, this marijuana that I had, you know, good luck with that. I hope that gets really far in the case. And like, that should be, I mean, that's like the whole foundation of the war on drugs is the government saying you don't have a right to do this to yourself. And anybody that believes in bodily autonomy, I think should see that, you know, as long as you're calculating the risks. Yeah. Yeah. When it comes down to it, like those laws should protect everyone else in society. So nobody's doing harm to other people. But right. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, yeah, I mean, it's our body and we have sovereignty over that. So we should be able to do whatever we want. Yeah. Um, And it would be nice if the the government would supply us some safe quality controlled compounds to do that with. You know, and speaking of Canada, there is a safe supply. I mean, there are pilot programs for safe supply of opioids. And it's not just like weak little opioids. It's uh, Dilaudid, I believe. And yeah, that that seems to be working really well. We had Mark Tyndall on the show to talk about that a couple of months ago. And, you know, it's it's really great to see progress being made on the Canadian front. And you talked about a regulated market. I mean, that already kind of exists in the Netherlands for psilocybin truffles. And it it's great because it comes in a little box and there's like harm reduction, how to do it, you know, what to expect. Yeah, yeah nice little branded box. And, and yeah, they work, work really well. Yeah, the Netherlands have, has taken another kind of another approach because they're they, they've got the decrim approach where, yeah, I guess it seems like Canada's, well, I mean, with, with our, our, mer- our cannabis um, regulations anyways, we're, we're definitely on the, uh, you know, the, the legalization um, of it, but it, it all depends on how the government, uh, the government of the day wants to interact with the UN and the, like the conventions on that, that we're, we're all signed to. Technically, I think Canada's um, in, in uh, contravention of the, uh, those, but uh yeah, nobody's nobody said anything, so business as usual. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, we're at the top of the hour here, so I'll just say, is there anything else you want to let people know about Salvia or any of the cool projects that going on at Haven Life Sciences? Yeah, well, just uh, our, our website, www.havenlife.com. Definitely uh, feel free to, to check that out. And then just stay tuned because we're a public company. There's a few things that we're not allowed to reveal before they're revealed to the public at large. But um, yeah, um, in the next couple of weeks, we'll, we'll definitely be having lots of uh, really exciting press releases coming out. So stay tuned for that. And um, yeah, Salvia is a fantastic thing. I don't think it should be demonized. I think with the right set and setting and the right state of mind, I think that it's a very valuable experience. You know, that said, just yeah, make, make sure you know your supply and regardless of what compounds you're using, just make sure that it's, it's safe. I always advocate for, uh, for testing. I know that dancesafe.org sells some really good test kits. So just, yeah, be safe out there. Yeah, and people can find you on Twitter at Dr. Ivan Castleman. That's C-A-S-S-E-L-M-A-N. Thanks so much for coming on the show. It was a really great conversation. I hope people really learn a lot about this like this fascinating plant that it's just so cool. I like a lot of the salvia plants are really interesting too. Uh obviously know most about salvia divinorum, but they're all great. Yeah, we have a yeah, a lot of a lot of herbs that we use are from the salvia genus. Yeah, no, it's 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 a very, very interesting genus. But yeah, no, thank you so much for having me. Great to great to talk about salvia. It's uh, definitely a near and dear to my heart. And uh, yeah, thank you very much. Okay, I'll talk to you soon. Have a good day. Okay, awesome. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to Narcotica. You can follow us on Twitter at Narcocast. We're also on social medias. You know the ones. Narcotica is an independent production by Christopher Morath, Zachary Siegel, and Troy Farah. Our theme music is composed by Glassboy. Additional music is by Chris Zabriskie. And I'm your co-producer, Garrett. Be sure to give us a like and a follow wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, you name it. And be sure to spread the word. New Narcotica episodes are coming. If you got something you want to splurge in our ears, you can email us at tips at narcocast.com. And the biggest and warmest of shout-outs to our Patreon subscribers. Thank you guys so much. Your contributions keep this show on the air.